Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers is a Christian apologetics ministry led by Dr. Pat Zukran. Pat provides compelling messages from top apologetic scholars, defending the Christian worldview and provides valuable resources for every person seeking answers to life's questions, as well as addressing key issues of our time. Serving to equip Christians who want to effectively engage their world for Christ is our focus. The Bible claims to be the unique and divinely inspired Word of God. However, there are many other books that make a similar claim. How do we know which one is divinely inspired? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, our host, Pat, will be sharing from his weekly YouTube series, Question of the Week, where he presents the case for the divine inspiration of the Bible. Aloha, and welcome to another episode of Question of the Week. This is brought to you by Evidence and Answers and our great partners here at the Honolulu Christian Church. Well, we did a whole series on the miraculous life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we talked about the Son of God. Now we're going to talk about the Word of God. So we're going to be doing a series on the Bible. Now, the Bible claims to be the unique, one and only, divinely inspired Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 states, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the Bible claims to be the unique, one and only, divinely inspired Word of God. However, as you may know, many religious textbooks claim to be divinely inspired. How do we know then that the Bible is the inspired Word of God over other religious texts that make that similar claim? Well, just like with Jesus, we examine the evidence. Remember, as I stated on our show when we talked about miracles, God confirms His message and messengers with acts of God or miracles. And I'm going to present the case that the Bible alone is the only book with unique supernatural confirmation of its divine inspiration. Now, there are many lines of evidence for the divine inspiration of the Bible. We'll just be going through six. Jesus' affirmation of the Old and New Testament, the indestructibility of the Bible, the unity of the Bible, the prophetic legacy, the archaeology, and science. All right, so those six are what we'll be going through. And in this show, we'll be going through the first three, the Jesus' affirmation of the Bible, the indestructibility of the Bible, and the unity of the Bible. Those are the three that we'll be covering in this section. One of the most powerful evidences for the divine inspiration of the Bible is that Jesus, the divine Son of God, confirms the authority of the Old and New Testament. Remember, Jesus claimed to be the divine Son of God and confirmed His claim through His sinless, miraculous life, death, and resurrection. And we spent several shows previously demonstrating how Jesus confirmed His claim to be the divine Son of God through His miraculous life and resurrection from the dead. So, if you want to see those shows, go to our previous YouTube videos and take a look at those, how we build the case that Jesus is the unique, one and only, divine Son of God. So, since Jesus is God incarnate then, whatever He taught is true, and anything that opposed His teaching then would be false. 
So Jesus affirms the authority of the Old Testament directly and the New Testament indirectly. Now, some of you might be saying, hey, this is a circular argument. No, it's not. Remember, we made our case previously. All right, if you want to take a look at those videos, you certainly can. How we demonstrated Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. So Jesus directly affirms the authority of the Old Testament and he indirectly affirms the authority of the apostles who wrote the New Testament throughout the Gospels. And you remember in our previous videos, the Gospels are a very accurate historical record that record the teachings, life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So throughout Jesus' life, he affirmed the Old Testament directly. He quoted the Old Testament and called it the commands of God. For example, in Mark chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, he called them the commands of God. Or other times he called it the word of God. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus stated, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus called the Old Testament the Law and the Prophets, referring and showing that the Old Testament was indeed authoritative, it cannot be broken, and it is imperishable. All right? So there, as you can see, in several cases like that, Jesus directly affirms the authority of the Old Testament. And throughout his ministry, Jesus made clear his teachings when he had to correct people on false teachings and his actions, the things that he did were consistent with the Old Testament. He also judged others and others' teachings and the traditions by the standards of the Old Testament. Therefore, he affirmed the Old Testament as the divinely inspired Word of God. And what's really important is this, Jesus specifically affirms as historical Several accounts of the Old Testament that many liberal scholars and critics considered mythical. For example, Jesus affirms that there was a historical Adam and Eve. In Matthew chapter 19, he builds his case on marriage on Adam and Eve. Jesus affirms Noah and the flood in Matthew 24. Jesus affirms the Mosaic authorship of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch there in Luke 24 and several other places. Jesus affirms the Exodus in John chapter 3, verse 14, and other places. He affirms the Exodus as a historical event. Jesus affirms Jonah and the whale in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus affirms Sodom and Gomorrah in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus affirms a historical King David in chapter 12 of Matthew and a historical King Solomon in Matthew chapter 6. Now, being an archaeology student, I'm getting another graduate degree in this field of biblical archaeology. And one of the things that I learned is that many biblical archaeologists or Near Eastern archaeologists consider all the Old Testament before 1 Kings, okay, before Ahab and King Omri, pretty much to be fiction or legend. But what we're discovering through the discovery of archaeology. It's building the case that indeed these are historical and archaeological discoveries are beginning to affirm that. But even before archaeology, Jesus, the divine Son of God, affirms these accounts to indeed be historical. I remember my nephew asked me about Adam and Eve. He said, Uncle, how can you prove 
Adam and Eve and the story of the Garden of Eden? Can we find the apple or the fruit that Adam and Eve bit? And I said, no, we can't, all right? That happened thousands of years ago, and the apple be disintegrated and gone by now, or the, whatever fruit it is that they ate. So it'd be long gone by now. So he said, how do you know Adam and Eve is true? And I said, you look at Jesus Christ, okay? If we can see that Jesus Christ was indeed the divine Son of God, and we can build a case for that, if Jesus is God incarnate, then what Jesus taught is true. And Jesus affirmed a historical Adam and Eve. And as many of you know, in our previous shows, we built a very good case that Jesus is the unique, one and only divine Son of God. So Jesus affirms directly the authority of the Old Testament. Then Jesus also confirmed the New Testament indirectly. He promised the Holy Spirit would inspire his disciples who would remember his teachings and continue his teachings and be inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit in their writings of the New Testament. Jesus stated in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him and he would delegate this authority to his disciples. In John 14, he promised his Holy Spirit would guide his disciples so that they would remember accurately all the things that he taught. And the apostles did indeed demonstrate that they came with the authority of God through the miracles they performed as Jesus and the prophets did before them. And as we studied in previous videos, in the book of Acts, which is another very accurate historical account, records the miracles of the apostles. And since we know that the book of Acts is written well within the lifetime of these eyewitnesses, then they're not legendary. And Acts and the Gospels could not have survived written so early in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, most of whom were critics and enemies of the cross wanting to stomp out the testimony of Jesus and the apostles. So only the Bible was written by prophets of God and apostles who confirmed their credentials with supernatural signs and wonders. Okay? No other book was written with authors who performed such miracles and have this kind of supernatural confirmation. Buddha, in his earliest historical records, okay, Buddhist scholars will tell you, he did nothing supernatural. Muhammad, right? even Abdullah Yusuf Ali, who writes the most uh, is considered to have written the most authoritative English translation of the Quran, states in his introduction that Muhammad did not do any miracles of a supernatural sort or any kind of miracles over nature. Confucius does not do any, quote, miracles. Joseph Smith, who wrote the Book of Mormon, doesn't do any confirmed miracles. Only Christ and the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament confirm their credentials with supernatural miracles. Next, we have the unity argument. The Bible is surprising in its unity given that it is written by such a diversity of authors over such distinct or long period of time. The Bible is written by over 40 different authors from very different backgrounds. Peter's an uneducated fisherman. Paul is an educated rabbi. Moses was educated in Egypt. Micah is a country shepherd. David is a king. Just diversity of authors from very different backgrounds, written on three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa, written under very different circumstances. David writing under the golden age of Israel, Jeremiah writing while Jerusalem is falling and the people are going into exile, the apostles writing during a time when Israel is under Roman rule. And it's written over a 1500 year period, all right? 
Now you put all that together, you have a lot of diversity here in authorship, yet there is a tremendous unity here. It is remarkable with such diversity, you have such unity and consistency. There's one theme through all 66 books, God's redemption of mankind. One problem, sin. One solution, the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. There's a consistency in theology you're, and philosophy. I mean, you're covering numerous theological and philosophical issues, and the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Things like the nature of God, the nature of man. What's man's problem? What is the origin of evil? How will evil be defeated? When does life begin? What is the nature of marriage? Numerous, deep, controversial, theological, philosophical, historical issues, and the Bible does not contradict itself. It's amazing with such diversity, you have such unity. Let me give you an example. Let's take 10 medical students who graduate from the same medical school in the same year, and we have them write on four controversial topics, okay? Abortion, euthanasia, transgenderism, and uh, cloning. Let's have those 10 medical students write extensive papers on those topics. Would they agree with each other on every point? No, they wouldn't, all right? Yet in the Bible, you have over 40 different authors from very different backgrounds on writing on three different continents over a 1,500-year period, and you have an amazing unity. Hey, there's no other book that comes close, all right? The Quran, although there are contradictions in there, but it's also, it doesn't have the diversity. It's supposedly written by only one author. The Book of Mormon, you have historical errors and contradictions in there, but it doesn't have the diversity of authorship as well. It's supposedly written by one person, Joseph Smith. The only book that might come close would be the Vedas and the Upanishads of Hinduism. But when you read it, there are contradictions all over the place. You know, the Vedas, when they begin, it's very polytheistic. But as you go on later, you see it becomes very monistic or pantheistic. Right, so we have the unity with, despite the great diversity of authorship. It's as if one great mind was guiding these authors over a 1500 year period to write a very cohesive and unified revelation. And we know who that was. That was the Holy Spirit. And finally, we have the indestructibility of the Bible. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall endure forever. And indeed, the Bible has been the most attacked book, and yet it has withstood all those attacks for over 2,000 years. Just the fact that it's still around, despite all the attacks placed upon it, shows you it's a very unique book. My mentor, Dr. Norman Geisler, said this. He said, despite its importance, the Bible has suffered more vicious attacks than would be expected to be made of such a book. The Bible has withstood all its attackers. Diocletian attempted to exterminate it. And yet, it is the most widely published book in the world today. Biblical critics once regarded much of it as mythological, but archaeology has established it as historical. Antagonists have attacked its teaching as primitive, but moralists urge that its teaching on love be applied to modern society. Skeptics have cast doubt on its authenticity, and yet more men are convinced of its truth today than ever. Attacks on the Bible continue to arise from science, psychology, and political movements, but the Bible remains undaunted. There's no book that has been so attacked, yet the Bible remains and supports, continues to uphold its claim of divine inspiration. The fact that it's been around for 2,000 years and is still seen as the inspired authoritative word of God 
tells you there's something special about this book. You know, there's a story or a poem called The Anvil. I don't know who wrote it, but it goes like this. Last eve, I passed the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so thought I, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptics' blows have beaten upon, yet through the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammers gone. The Bible has been one of the most attacked books, attacked by philosophers, historians, people in computer science, archaeologists, critics, and yet the Bible continues to prove itself to be reliable and authoritative time and time again. You know, Voltaire, the great skeptic during the Enlightenment, said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquities curiosity seeker. Well, Voltaire is gone. And in fact, after his death, the printing press that he printed his attacks on the Bible on was used to guess what? To print Bibles. His very house became a Bible storage house for the Geneva Bible Society. So you see, the indestructibility of the Bible builds another case that there's something special about this book. Other religious literature, you know, for example, the Quran. If you critique and attack the Quran, there'll be death threats on your life. But as Christians, we take another view. We say, attack the Bible. Go ahead. It's the divinely inspired Word of God, and it can stand up for itself. And indeed, it has. Well, those are three lines of evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. Let me take a few questions that have come during the week regarding the inspiration of the Bible. First one is this, okay? Pat, how did God inspire the authors? Did he possess them, you know, and use them like a typewriter? Uh, no, he did not, okay? In occult possession, when you see people in the occult getting divinely inspired, their bodies taken over by another entity and they become someone else and they lose their state of consciousness. Often you'll see, maybe hear other voices or their eyes roll back, uh, I've seen, you know, and they begin to write erratically, right? That's not how God inspired uh, the writers of the Bible. Sometimes he spoke to them directly. Sometimes he spoke to them through a dream or through an angel. But the majority of the time, what God would do is record in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the word carried along there in the Greek is used of a wind gently pushing a boat, the wind filling up the sails and pushing the boat in the right direction. Right? So that's how God inspired these writers. Often he would put the idea or thoughts into their mind, and then he would guide them not overtaking or controlling them like in spirit possession, but using their backgrounds, their history, their literary skill to then communicate his word perfectly and accurately. That's why in the 66 books of the Bible, you see the different personalities of the authors come out. Okay? God pushed them in the right direction. It's like a boat sailing down a river and the wind gently pushing it in the direction it needs to go. The captain of the boat is free to walk around the boat and move the boat in certain directions, but the wind gently blows it in the direction it needs to go. 
Here's another question. Pat, how are the books of the Bible then selected? Well, we're going to have a whole show on this, on the canon of the Bible. But let me answer this one real quickly. Basically, it came down to authorship. As I stated earlier, God confirms his message and messengers with miracles. So were the authors confirmed with miracles? Were they confirmed prophets or apostles? And did they demonstrate that the authority of God was upon them through miracles, whether it's miracles over nature, like healing, uh, and the kind of miracles the apostles did, or if it was through prophecy, were they confirmed by miracles? Next, did their writings come with the power of God? If you read the Bible, you know, it's different from any other kind of literature in there. So did it come with the power of God? And third, was it consistent with previous revelation? You know, God is not illogical. He does not contradict himself. So was it consistent with previous revelation? So those are some of the criteria uh, in how the books were selected. When they were written by a recognized prophet of God or one of the apostles or a very, very close associate, once that authorship was confirmed and was seen as authoritative, it became part of what we call the canon of the Old Testament. Next question here. Pat, why are there so many translations? Well, once again, we're going to do another show on that as well. All right. But to answer it just briefly, okay, we're going to do a more extensive show on it later. But to answer it just briefly, remember the Bible is not written in English. It's written in Old Testament Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now, those of you who speak a second language know you cannot take a language like Chinese or Japanese or even languages like Spanish and directly translate them word for word into English. All right? You cannot. The word order, the sentence structures, they are different. Also, the figures of speech are different. Right, The idioms that are used in China are different from the ones we use in the United States. Right? So when you come across idioms or poems or allegories, you're going to have to translate them in a way that the reader in the other language would understand it. We're going to do a more extensive show on that. So that's what we have in the Bible. It comes in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So the sentence structure, uh, the words are different. And so there needs to be what we call some dynamic translation done. It needs to be translated into our sentence structure using our contemporary vocabulary that we understand to best translate the meaning of the Old Testament written in those languages into English. Now, not only that, not only do they, have, do they have to be translated into English, with each generation, the English language changes as well. So what people spoke in the 1600s, that kind of old English is different from the kind of English that we speak now. In fact, the English that was spoken in the 1800s, 1900s is different from what we speak now. And so these translations need to be updated to meet our vernacular. So there's a whole art to translation there and even different parts of the United States, right? Though we all speak English, we have different ways of saying things as well. So you put that all together. That's why there's so many translations written for one generation to the other. Also, as scholars, they are beginning to, you know, as they translate, they're trying to get the best meaning of what the Bible writer intended into our language. So though it's gone through that process, the translation, I can say, is very accurate. God communicated his word clearly. And so though there may be some nuances here, 
that we miss, some fine-tuning that we may miss, we get the overall translation and meaning of the text. But like I said, we'll do a whole show on translations. Well, that's all the time that we have for right now. Hope you'll join us again here on Question of the Week. And any more questions that you have, I encourage you to write me at pat at evidenceandanswers.org and send me your questions. And if you want to do any more research on the things that we studied, I encourage you to go to our YouTube site, the Honolulu Christian Church, or my website at evidenceandanswers.org, or my YouTube page to go there and you can see all the things that we covered and a whole lot more. So thank you for being with us here on Question of the Week, and we look forward to being with you once again next week here on Question of the Week. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, Give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrack.